Our theme for 2016 is strengthening your roots, knowing God through his word. But we cannot know God through his word if we don't know his word. But it's also true that before we begin to dig down deeply into the Bible, we need to know the overall picture of what God is trying to say to us through Scripture. What is the foundation? What are the the studs on this building? And then we begin to add the paint and the doors and the decorations by digging down deeply. And for some people, when they hear the phrase, turn in your Old Testament to, they just shut their ears off. There's a lot of reasons for that. Some people find the Old Testament to be intimidating. It's longer than the New Testament. There are a lot of names that are very, very difficult. In fact, in my Bible class this morning, we were looking at the book of Judges, and we just skipped over a lot of the place names because we just couldn't pronounce all of them, and that's quite okay. Sometimes people think the Old Testament is just filled with stories for children, and you know those things are good when we're six or seven or eight years old, but I've grown up beyond that, and I don't need that stuff anymore. And after all, we're not under the Old Testament law anymore, so, so what's the point? Why go back and study that particular book? But I hope you heard the middle verse of our scripturing this morning as Garrett read it to us in Romans 15 and verse 4, where the Apostle Paul said, For whatever things were written before, the old King James says, aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In that verse, we are taught that we can learn from the Old Testament. You can know the Old Testament story. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some verses, some passages that are difficult. There certainly are. In my opinion, the hardest book of the Bible is in the Old Testament. To me, the hardest book of the Bible is the book of Ezekiel. You may not feel that way, but I do. There are certain passages, certain chapters of the Bible in the Old Testament that are very difficult. But the story of the Old Testament is not difficult. We'll begin to look at it from a larger view. Our plan for three Sunday morning sermons upcoming, including this one, is to overview the entire story of the Bible in just three lessons. Taking a look at the Old Testament this morning. And then that blank page, the page between the Testaments, and then in the third lesson, looking at the story of the New Testament. Taking a 30,000 foot view. So then we have that scaffolding in place, we can begin to build the building. We can begin at that point to dig down more deeply and understand how we can strengthen our roots in God's Word. But before we even begin that, we must make sure that we keep one thing in mind. And that is this simple fact. That no matter where you are in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, the entire story of the Bible is centered on God's plan to redeem mankind through Jesus Christ. That's the entire Bible. Everything found in Scripture speaks to that one unified theme. God's plan to save mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. As we go through these lessons, I hope that we don't lose that perspective. You've probably heard it said this way. You can outline the the entire Bible in just three points. The Old Testament gives the message that the Messiah, Jesus, is coming. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is here. And then Acts through Revelation speak to the fact that Jesus is coming again. That's the entirety of the Bible. And all of it centers on that one person of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're calling our lesson, 39 Books in 30 Minutes. And yes, you can set your watch. 39 Books in 30 Minutes. Because we are going to overview the entire story of the Old Testament in one lesson. But for some people, the Old Testament can be confusing because of the way it is laid out. What I mean by that is, it is not arranged necessarily chronologically. If you read through the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, you're not just reading a straight story. It overlaps in many places. Instead, the Old Testament, for the most part, is arranged by its type of literature. 
The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are books of Moses, books of the law. Our pew packers can tell you that by holding their hand out. If your kids come to pew packers, have them this afternoon hold their hand out and tell you the first five books of the Bible, and they'll show you what that is and what those books mean. The next books are books of history. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are continuing the story, the narrative, the history of God's people. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are books of wisdom and poetry. And you'll see that just in the layout of those books, just that they are poetic in nature. The remainder of the Old Testament are books of prophecy. They divide into two parts, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Five of the major and twelve of the minor. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The major prophets, longer books and bigger area of influence. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, and Ahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, thank you for getting through that, are the twelve minor prophets. Simply shorter books and less area of influence. But what's the story of it all? What does it all mean? If you got a handout this morning, you may have noticed it's a little bit different in its style. It's a lot of blanks on it, but it's also just a half sheet. And that's intentional. I hope that you will fill it out and maybe stick it in your Bible somewhere to help you with this. Because if you will fill out that handout this morning, you will have an overview of the entire story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament divides into two parts, and we're going to look at those this morning. The first part goes from the establishment to the exile. And this is where we'll spend most of our time because most of the Old Testament story is found here. It covers everything from creation through when God's people were taken into exile about 3,500 years later. There are ten books in this section, each with a theme word. Genesis, of course, begins the Bible. We will give it the key word, commencement. Commencement. Now, obviously, that comes from the name of the book, Genesis, Beginnings. And obviously it comes also from the very first chapter. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The commencing of everything is found in Genesis chapter 1. But that's not the only beginning or the only commencement found in the book of Genesis. You find the commencement, for example, of the home when God brought Adam and Eve together to create the first marriage. You find the commencement of sin on earth as well as God's plan of redemption to save mankind in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, if you mark in your Bible... I put a cross beside Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where you have the first glimmer of hope of the coming one to save mankind from his sin. You have the commencement, the beginning of worship in Genesis chapter 4. You have the commencement of the land promise to Abram. We know him better as Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and how much that plays a part into the story of the rest of the Old, uh, the Old Testament. You have the commencement of the Jewish or Israelite nation. God will bring the Messiah through that nation, we are told. And though the book, uh, the books of the Old Testament speak to a lot of other nations, the most, for the most part it focuses on that nation, the Israelites, the Jews, through which the Messiah would come. And there are many others we could take the time to, to talk about this morning. But if you read through the book of Genesis sometime, just make a list of how many firsts, how many beginnings or commencements there are in that book, and you'll be amazed. It is a book of commencement. Exodus is a great law book. And so we give it the theme word of covenant. It is the law of covenant. It begins with the Israelites coming out of bondage in Egypt through the leadership of Moses. But halfway through the book, you begin with the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the book, for the most part, is a series of laws. There are a few stories interspersed, but for the most part, it is laws. If there is a key passage in the book of Exodus, you'll find it in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where God told Moses to say to the people, Now therefore, if... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people or the children of Israel. For in many ways, that little word, if, outlines the rest of the Old Testament. If the people were faithful to God, he blessed them. If the people were unfaithful to God, he did not bless them. It is a covenant. And thankfully, God always kept his part of the covenant, which helps us to trust him always. Exodus reminds us of that. For some people, Leviticus is the hardest book of the Old Testament, or at least the most difficult to read, because it is just a series of laws, chapter after chapter after chapter. But its name implies that it was laws dealing with the Levites, the priests. And so we call this book a book of consecration. They were to be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's in the book of Leviticus. While the people of God were to always be set apart or different or holy, the priests even more so. They were to even separate themselves from the nation as far as doing certain duties to make sure that they were prepared to offer the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. It was a series of of laws that dealt always with holiness among God's people. And so consecration. Numbers comes next. And what's interesting to some people is that the book of Numbers doesn't deal a whole lot with actual numbers. Only the beginning couple of chapters and the ending couple of chapters have anything to do with with numbers. However, we can call this book a book of coordination because the book of numbers at the beginning and the end does deal with numbers and order, but the middle portion of the book deals with the simple fact that God's people were supposed to be in coordination with the way he would have them to live. This is the book, by the way, where the people are right on the shores of the promised land of the Jordan River, but are too fearful to go in. They were not coordinated with the ways of God. This is the book that contains the story of Balaam's donkey, one of the most interesting stories in the entire Old Testament. But constantly, through this book, you see God coordinating his people under the leadership of Moses and saying, if you will stay ordered, then your children, the next generation, will go into the promised land and they will be faithful. And that happens in Deuteronomy, or, or prepare for it in Deuteronomy. Moses, the great lawgiver, the writer of the first five books, is preparing to end the end of his time on, in, this, in this life and the end of his time of leadership. You can call the book of Deuteronomy a book of communication. Deuteronomy is one of the greatest farewell speeches ever given. In fact, it's a series of three speeches where Moses reminds the people of their history of the ways in which God has blessed them and warns them of what will happen if they do not follow him in the, in, uh, in the promised land. He reminds them that's happened before and it will happen again. It's a book of communication because God communicates through Moses to these people. And he communicates the passing of leadership on to the next great leader whose name titles the next book, Joshua, the great leader. The book of Joshua, easily you can give the title of Conquest. Because this is a book of of battle. This is a book of victory. The people finally go into the promised land. They overtake the promised land. The book is filled with battles and with God's people driving out sinful, wicked people. They don't do it perfectly, and this book does contain several mistakes. But for some people, the book of Joshua is the high point of the Old Testament. Because by and large, the people are faithfully following God's plan. There are mistakes. And Joshua is a great leader who makes some mistakes. But by and large, it's a wonderful book. But... The problem is the people do not finish the job. They do not completely drive out the pagan and wicked people from the promised land. And you begin to see problems in the book of Judges, where we give it the key word, compromise. Because the people did not drive out 
the pagan practices of the people. Compromise happens in the book of Judges over and over and over again. As they begin to try to follow God a little bit and try to follow pagan practices a little bit as well, and they fall further and further into sin. And so the people would finally be overtaken. They would cry out to God, and God would send deliverers, judges, to deliver his people. But then the people would fall back into sin again, compromise the law of God again, and the whole cycle started over, in fact, six times. And all of that leads to the people so much wanting to be like the nations around them that they reject the leadership of God and ask for an earthly king. But God is able to take something bad and make good out of it. And in the books of First and Second Samuel, which originally were one book, by the way, you see those first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. We can give this, these two books the title Confederation. Because the twelve tribes of Israel are united under these kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And while none of the three of them were perfect, under especially David's leadership, there was a high point in the Old Testament. Solomon, militarily speaking, was even greater. In fact, we are told in these books that the people finally occupied the entirety of what God had promised them as the promised land. The nation was powerful. The nation was wealthy. They were united for the most part. But sin was still real, and first and second kings had to happen. Maybe the saddest books in the entire Bible. When Solomon dies, two men fight for the throne, and they end up dividing the kingdom into two parts. We call this book the Book of Calamity, or these books the Book of Calamity. The southern kingdom, containing just two of the twelve tribes, Judah and Benjamin, typically called Judah because it was so much larger, while ten tribes make up the northern kingdom, usually called Israel, Civil war, idolatry, and many other types of wickedness abound in these books. As king after king in both kingdoms does not follow God. There were a few good ones, but not very many. In fact, by the time you get near the end of Second Kings, the people of God have gone so far into sin that they're worshiping other gods and even sacrificing their own children. That brings the first part of Old Testament history to a close. Second Kings ends by telling us of the people of God being taken into exile by foreign nations, both northern and southern kingdom. God had warned his people over and over again, but they failed to obey, or they would obey for just a little while and then fall back into sin again. It's a very, very sad part, and I'm, it's awful that we read it, but aren't you thankful that's not where the story ends? Because the second part of the Old Testament story goes from the exile to the end of the record. It would be an awful end of the story if we were in exile and that was it. But one of the continuing themes of the Old Testament is God's faithfulness to his people and God's willingness to forgive and redeem his people. And even in the midst of captivity and exile, God is working. And so the rest of the Old Testament story takes us out of the exile, back into the promised land, and is a story of triumph, for the most part, of joy and anticipation. The first books to think about here are First and Second Chronicles. If you are reading through the Old Testament straight through and you come to these books, you may think to yourself, I've read this before. Because for the most part, you have. Chronicles, the key word is simply the word records. Because we must remember when these books were compiled and written. They were written when the people were coming back into the promised land as a way to tell them their entire history. Here's where you have been. Here's what God did for you. Here's what God did to you or allowed to happen to you because you were sinful. And basically the message of these two books is don't let it happen again. God is giving you the promised land again. He's allowing you to go back to the promised land and live there and be peaceful if 
you'll remain faithful. And here's the records of all that's led up to this moment. Two other books round out the history of the Old Testament story. The first is Ezra. This man, a scribe, leads one of two groups found in the book back into the Promised Land. Zerubbabel brings the first, Ezra brings the second. And the key word of this book is restoration. Because in the book of Ezra, you have a restoring under Zerubbabel of the temple and worship. And under Ezra, a restoration of respect for the law. Ezra was a scribe. And Ezra 7.10 tells us that Ezra set his heart to know the law of God and to do it and to teach his laws and statutes in Israel. An outline even for us today. To know God's law, to practice it, and to teach it. A restoration of worship and the law. And the final book, chronologically, is the book of Nehemiah, which gives the great leader, shows that great leader leading more people back, and the key word is rebuilding, as he rebuilds the wall of protection around the city of Jerusalem and makes sure that the law is continuing to be upheld in its pure form, rebuilding. Now, some of you are looking at your watch and you're thinking, he's got a long way to go to make that 30-minute promise. I know preachers can't read clocks, but trust me, I've got one right here, Okay. But have you noticed something I've said over and over and over going through this list? The Old Testament story, you've just heard it. If you read Genesis through Nehemiah, you have read chronologically the story of the Old Testament. Every other book of the Old Testament, the ones we've not talked about, fits in that framework. It fits somewhere within that chronology. For example, we skip the book of Ruth. Well, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us in the time when the judges ruled the land. That book fits during the time of judges. We skip the book of Job. The book of Job has so many things found in it that make it clear it occurred during the time of Genesis, probably near the time of the flood itself, somewhere in that time frame, but early on in biblical history. Psalms, obviously, we know the poets themselves. David wrote about half of them. Solomon wrote a couple. Moses wrote one or two, and several other people wrote others. We simply fit those during the times when those people lived. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, he penned. So we simply fit those during the time of his life. And all the books of the prophets, most of them tell us what king was ruling when this particular prophecy was made. Maybe the most famous passage that shows us that is in Isaiah chapter 6, where in verse 1, Isaiah said, In the year when King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on his, uh, on his throne, high and lifted up. We simply place those prophecies in the time when they were made because the prophets, for the most part, tell us when they prophesied, when they were working. To be honest, if you will read the first several books of the Old Testament, you have the chronology. You have the framework. And then it's a matter of simply taking everything else and fitting it in, seeing where it goes. Where do these prophecies fit? Where does Job fit? Where do some of the Psalms fit? Where does Ruth fit? And on and on it goes. With all that in place, I want us to see that if we miss one major point, we've missed the entire point of the Old Testament. And that is this. Even though his name does not appear, the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. God is the author of both the Old and the New Testaments. And God is showing us through all of this unfolding of history and all of these prophecies that something better is coming. That a Messiah, a Redeemer, a Savior is coming. This is not original with me, and you may have seen this before. But as we, be, as we close, I want you to see that every Old Testament book points toward Jesus Christ. 
In Genesis, we see Jesus pictured and promised as the seed of woman who would crush the head of Satan. In Exodus, we see Jesus typified by the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is pictured by the work and the holiness of the priests. In Numbers, he is pictured in both the cloud of fire and the pillar of cloud that led the people, as well as the bronze serpent that was lifted up for the healing of people. In Deuteronomy, he is prophesied specifically as a leader and a prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of the army, the one who brings salvation. In Judges, he is pictured as a deliverer and a lawgiver. In Ruth, he is a redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Jesus is the one who will come from the lineage and the household of David, the king. In the books of Kings and Chronicles, Jesus is the perfect king who stands in contrast, stark contrast, to even the best earthly king. In Ezra, Jesus is typified by someone like Zerubbabel who would rebuild a temple and by Ezra himself who would show honor to the law. In Nehemiah, Jesus is pictured by the leader Nehemiah who rebuilt walls of protection around the people of God. In Esther, he is typified by Mordecai, one who would stand for his people and show courage in the woman of Esther. In Job, Jesus is pictured as the dayspring from on high. In Psalms, he is the promised Messiah, worthy of praise. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is the wisdom of God. In the Song of Solomon, you see the perfect picture of marriage, which would be so perfectly shown in Christ and his church, Ephesians chapter 5. In Isaiah, he is prophesied to be the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is pictured by the weeping prophet, one who would show emotion and compassion for God's people. In Ezekiel, you see the phrase son of man, showing that Jesus would be God. In Daniel, he is pictured as the son of God, who comes in the clouds. Hosea pictures him to be the perfect groom, even to an unfaithful bride of his people. Joel shows him to be the one who will be the salvation of all people. Amos, he is the one who will bear the burdens of all people. Obaniah shows him to be one mighty warrior and savior. Jonah prophesies and pictures that as Jonah is in the belly of the great fish, so Jesus would be in the earth for three days, but would come again, overcoming insurmountable odds. Micah tells us that he would be both from Bethlehem as well as from everlasting. In other words, Micah tells us he is both God and man. Nahum shows us he is the one who would avenge God's people. Habakkuk typifies him as one who would plead for the people. Zephaniah says that he'll be the one who will restore the remnant of God's people. Haggai pictures him as a fountain who will cleanse the people. Zechariah says he will be pierced but on someone else's behalf. And Malachi says one who repair the way for him and Jesus would be the son of righteousness. It's all about Jesus the Christ. From when mankind fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the end of Malachi, virtually on every page, there is a picture, a typification, or a prophecy that says something better is coming. And praise God, He has. He is Jesus the Christ. The Old Testament story is that mankind rebelled against God, but that through the ages... God was working out a plan, often behind the scenes, to bring about one who could save us from what we could never save ourselves from. And for century after century after century, God continued to show grace, continued to show mercy, and yes, continued to show wrath upon sinful people, to continue to roll things forward to the perfect time when his son would come. From Genesis through Malachi, it's all about Jesus. 
And so the only question left for me to ask is simply this. Is my life all about Jesus? Is everything I do a picture, as best I can possibly display it, of the one who did come, of the one who did fulfill all those prophecies, of the one who did fulfill that plan, and the one who gives us hope so that we can go to heaven one day? I want to know God through his word. And every time I open his book, I need to see his son. And I need to see that his son came to save me and came to help me. Does my life display that? This morning, if you are not a Christian, if you're not obedient to the one who did come to fulfill all those prophecies of who the Old Testament continue to point forward to, God has laid out a plan through him because he died on the cross for you and for me. He's asked us to repent of our sins, confess his son as Lord, and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins where our sins are washed away. Have you done that? Maybe you have, but you have been living in such a way that your life shines forth the message of Christ everywhere that you might possibly be. Maybe you simply need more faithful and need encouragement to be more faithful. Whatever your need is this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.